And welcome to another edition of the Basketball Teacher Podcast. Your host, again, is Mike Hernandez, and my guest today is Coach Josiah Hager. Josiah, how are you today? I'm doing good, Mike. How are you? I am doing quite well. It is the summer, it is hot, and we are all in the midst still of this COVID-19 pandemic, trying to figure out our way through basketball, but we got some time to talk basketball, so here we are. So, Josiah, if you could do uh, us a favor for our listeners and give uh, an introduction to yourself, your basketball journey, where you've been, and where it is you're currently at right now. Sure, uh, sounds good. Uh, I actually I grew up in New York, uh, played organized basketball from I think third grade on, and and always really loved it. Uh, stopped playing um, after high school. Uh, I think early on, maybe junior high, really had a desire to coach, had a had a had a taste for tactics and X's and O's, but didn't really know what my path would be for that. I didn't I didn't at the time think I wanted to teach, and um and so basketball kind of got put on the back burner. Um, went to college uh, during that time, started working at summer camps, and that transitioned into full time work uh, at at summer camps at a few places around the country. Um, and then about ten years ago, I uh, came to the camp I'm at now, which is a little bit north of. Kansas City, Missouri, um, and uh, through the camp, uh, actually got connected to a homeschool group uh, in the area that runs uh, kind of co-op classes where homeschool students gather once a week to take classes with other homeschool students. Um, and they had a few sports, volleyball, track, and they had just started basketball. Um, and so someone asked me to help out. Um, that quickly transitioned to coaching. Um, I actually coached the varsity guys and girls together for a few years as we were kind of building the program. And then for the past uh, seven or eight years, I've been the head coach for our varsity uh, girls. We run varsity junior high and JV for, for guys and girls for, for basketball. And that's been my role uh, for that. So it is actually a homeschool team, 100% homeschool uh, students. So every student that is in your program has to be currently enrolled in a homeschool program, correct? Correct. Yeah. So there's homeschool basketball has grown a lot in the last 10 or 15 years. Um, there, there's been different tournaments and different programs and some have kind of a sliding scale. You'll see a lot of smaller uh, private schools that um, might have half homeschool students, um, but we're 100 percent homeschooled and most of the tournaments that we do against homeschool teams are, are similar. And for those who coach that, are, are those typically the parents of homeschool kids? Is there sort of a network that that allows those who want to coach homeschool students? How does that kind of work? Um, yeah, it, I think that's how a lot of it starts out. Um, it, obviously, as as programs grow and and that there's a lot of really successful homeschool programs around the country now. Uh, kind of the, the the on the guy on the guys side, Justin Jackson, who played at North Carolina and is on the Mavericks now, I believe, um, was a homeschool student that we played against. Uh, he was he was out of Houston, um, and so there's in some of the bigger cities, there's really highly developed. Um, really elite coaches that have been brought in from other programs um, to, to coach that. But the vast majority of the homeschool teams around the country are, yeah, our parents, our uh, other volunteers like myself. I'm not a parent of a, of a player, but um, and it just kind of builds. And if, if it takes hold, then uh, hopefully it starts to continue to build on itself um, and you just kind of kind of grow as the program grows. So, yeah, I'd say the majority um, the, of the teams that we play are parents or maybe a generation past. You know, they've had kids that have all moved through, but they love the game and they love the kids. And so they stick with the program. And, and that's fascinating because I think a lot of people might not realize just how big of a network there is for, for homeschool and homeschool sports. I know a lot of us are really familiar with things like AAU and organizations like that. But the fact that there is such a 
wide network for uh, those students who are participating in homeschool sports, I think is a great opportunity for them. And so with that, before we kind of get into the theme of the questions I want to ask you, just going back into talking about those homeschool teams, uh, obviously coaching students who are maybe in a homeschool environment are going to be different than those who go to a traditional public or private school. So in your experience, I know you've primarily just worked with homeschool students, but what are some unique challenges and opportunities that you feel come with coaching a homeschool team? Sure. Uh, well, I think the most practical challenge uh, that comes with it is we have really limited practice time. You know, the the, the cliche of the homeschooler just kind of being at home all day. Um, in my experience, really, it's not been true. They have their hands and they uh, they have their 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 time in a lot of different activities. Um, and then as homeschool kind of bouncing back to what we we're talking about before as homeschool basketball has grown since we can't have you know 5a 3a those kind of classes um the the country is pretty much split into division one and division two we're, we're part of division two which is in relation to the size of the city that we're in and so uh there's a lot of steps you have to go through to make sure that students live within a certain amount of miles from your practice facility um back in the day there are a lot of kind of former all-star teams around a state and taking them to a tournament um, and so with that, um, we, part of the, the division two is we're limited on our practice time. And so there, there's definitely some challenges with that. And then kind of along with that is finding the gym. You know, we're obviously we're a homeschool program. We don't have a school. We don't have a facility. Um, and so even in a town of about 100,000 people, we're fairly consistently hopping between churches and a Salvation Army, a YMCA, trying to find an affordable and consistent place that we can practice and that we can have home games. And so that can be a little bit of a challenge. And then I think for the students themselves, um, I, I would say, and you could speak to this better than me, but, you know, there's there's pluses and minuses, I guess, with not seeing the students all the time. You know, my, my I don't teach them, you know, for the most part, my interaction with them uh, is primarily through basketball. And so um, I would say it's relatively true that that the, the cliche of the homeschool kids are a little, you know, they're well behaved. We don't have a lot of pushback on too many things. But like I said, especially uh, with the girls that I've coached over the years, uh, they tend to have their. Um, interest really widespread and so uh, kind of getting them really engaged with basketball especially in the off season um, especially you know even in between during the season when we're not playing and engaged in practice um, th there's ways that can be a challenge as well as just homeschool families are, are used to having a lot of freedom uh, with their time that's that's a lot of the reason why they choose to homeschool and so uh, with a lot of the girls that are you know the oldest in their family it can be an adjustment even for the family uh, adjusting to a, to a busy sports schedule and stuff like that. So um, those are some of the kind of key things. But um, yeah, in talking to other coaches, I think a lot of the, the challenges are, are, are pretty similar. Um, as homeschool students, uh, they might be a little bit more likely, from what I've seen, to try basketball at a later stage. So I have ninth and 10th graders that are picking it up for the first time, um, as well as people that are you know, wow. dropping it in their 10th grade or their junior year. Um, so I would say the challenges overall are, are fairly similar. But the, the biggest thing is just uh, getting people to buy into the program itself because, you know, we don't we're not a part of a larger athletic program. We have our we raise our own funds. If we need to get new uniforms. If we need to pay for tournaments. Um, that's kind of all done person to person, transporting kids to and from games, all that kind of thing. Um, so there's a lot of specific things. But overall, um, like I said, a lot of the, the people challenges are probably pretty similar. And, and one of the things that uh, what your response made me consider was the fact that where I, I coach at, I, I coach at a, a public school and it, typically the students are kind of this homogenous group and they all have pretty 
similar interests and things that they're interested in. And, and just to touch on one thing you said really quickly, it seems to me that if you are coaching a, a homeschool type team, you have to really be intentional with your program building and kind of your team building because you are pulling in students uh, from different home environments and they don't really have this common building that they go to to socialize and hang out like eight hours a day. Am I, am I correct in thinking that? No, absolutely. I think that there's there's different challenges that come with that. Um, similarly, you know, the the nature of homeschooling is, is, is certainly not equitable to to quote unquote better parenting, but it, it by nature, it's more involved parenting. Uh, right. Then, you know, on, on a, you know, for basically 100 percent of the kids. And so uh, with a lot of the, the homeschool students who grow up around not necessarily their peers, but a lot of older and younger. And, and we find that there, there can be some struggle with peers. A lot of the homeschool students are really sharp around adults. They're really good with younger kids. And some of that peer to peer stuff is where they don't have as much of experience. Um, and so, yeah, so there's there's some that definitely makes sense. Right. And one of the things I'm, I'm glad you touched on and that you brought up was the idea of the sharpness and uh, in, in the ability for the, the students to kind of pick up on different things, because that's one of the themes in particular I wanted to focus on with you about was this idea of adaptability and flexibility when it comes to coaching. Adaptability and flexibility, not only in your personal coaching, but also uh, the players themselves feeling like they can be flexible and they can adapt to the situations that they encounter. So one of the things that you and I talked about off air was about your passion uh, for being flexible and your philosophy with wanting to incorporate positionless basketball and also being able to adapt and have these multiple defenses that you run. So for the coaches that are listening, why are these areas of things about positionless basketball and having multiple defenses and just being flexible in general? Why is that such an area of importance to you? Well, um, I think tactically, like, first of all, it, it's just really nice to have the flexibility that comes with that. It's really nice to go into a game and, and know that on both sides of the ball, whatever's thrown at us, we have different options. If we have, um, you know, if you just run a press and your press is getting feasted on, um, I, I think that can lead to some discouragement right away. Um, and, and I'm okay with, with players learning through challenge and I want them to be challenged in games. Um, but I think there's a confidence that can come from knowing that we have a variety of weapons. And, and I've found uh, with, with, with my players, um, they really they really become engaged with the process when the process is complicated. Um, they really enjoy the fact uh, that, that it's complicated. It, it helps them think the game really well, um, especially for those that maybe they picked up basketball a little bit later or they're a little bit smaller or, or not as quick as another player. They're, they're working really hard, and so they can really kind of catch up a lot um, with the mental game. Um, and, you know, ultimately, especially on the defensive side of the ball, everything comes down to, to zone or man. And then, of course, whether you're pressing or not. Um, and so a lot of it is different looks um, that kind of hopefully will, will throw the offense off their game a little bit. I'm a big believer in, in pressuring the ball. I'm a big believer in not giving them that first pass that they want to get the offense started. Um, and just having a lot of variety that we can do. Uh, there were times this year where we, we just ran the, the James Harden defense, just just double a girl every time um, and make somebody else beat you. Um, we also, I think probably the most unusual thing uh, that we run consistently uh, is a defense we call it ice, uh, where we have our three guards uh, playing man-to-man -man, and then our two bigs just kind of playing high-low in the middle um, and really not guarding those other two girls until they prove they can shoot. And then they pick them up man to man as they drop into the paint. And it requires a lot of communication. Um, but again, the girls really, I think, thrive on that and grow through that. 
And then offensively, um, you know, even for the girls that, you know, high school is obviously the majority of the players, any of us will ever coach. High school is, is where basketball is going to stop for them in an organized way. Um, but even for that, I think that overall basketball has moved in a good direction of not take, you know, if a girl's five, seven, when she's nine years old, you don't have to slide her into the post for her entire career. Um, and letting players really evolve as, as ball handlers, as passers, and as kind of thinkers of the game. Um, I found that in my first couple of years when we were playing a more traditional style of bigs and, and guards, we, we would end up with players uh, playing on the blocks that didn't really understand the flow of the game. And so defensively and offensively, you know, just reading the floor, reading what a teammate is doing, reading how if the ball moves here, how does that affect the, the floor over here? Um, and so just giving the freedom to play different positions, to, to be a ball handler, to be a driver, to be a passer, and to be a shooter um, from all positions uh, really makes us tougher to guard. Um, and it also, like I said, really engages the girls mentally, which is, I think, the most crucial thing. And that, and that's great that you mentioned this idea about like thinking about the game and, and having the players be able to think and have that level of autonomy when they're on the court to be able to make the right decision. And I couldn't agree more with what you said about not pigeonholing uh, certain players in a position where they only know how to do this one skill set and that's all they know how to do. But then all of a sudden somebody gets in foul trouble, there's an injury or something, and then they have to be thrown in a different situation. And then all of a sudden they're not quite too sure what to do. Um, but with your philosophy, it seems like if they're able to know the game and be able to understand what's supposed to happen, they can fit into those different roles. Um, so with that, is there a certain philosophy that you have right at the beginning of the game? I know that you allow for some flexibility. And I know if in a positionless offense, there uh, there's a lot of freedom, but like, are you going to press right away and see how they handle it? Are you going to just go into your half court defense? Do you have a certain philosophy when it comes to that at the beginning of the game? Sure. Um, so what, what tends to happen, uh, the way that we kind of make it fun and make it engaging uh, right away, is we have a, a pretty good athlete that uh, would be our, our five, would be our center if we played traditionally. And so we, we're, we're pretty confident we're going to win the tip um, uh, most of the time. And so our standard operating procedure is that uh, we, we win the tip forward. Um, it goes to a guard. We have two shooters sprinting down the wing uh, with some back screens coming, and we shoot a three within five seconds of the start of the game. Um, if it goes in, we go into a diamond press. Um, if it doesn't go in and we don't get the rebound, we drop back into a, a half-court trapping press um, and then uh, slide into man from that. So that's typically how we begin. Um, and then the first couple times down the court, uh, we'll, we'll stick with that, depending on whether that first shot went in or not. Um, and then typically about the third or fourth possession, uh, we'll slide into uh, a 1-3-1 or basically a trapping 2-3 uh, that kind of functions uh, similarly. Um, and then if we're able to get out to an early lead or if there's an early timeout, w whatever direction, whether we're down or whether we're winning, um, we'll typically uh, switch it up um, just to kind of keep people on their toes. Um, and then after every made three, uh, we're going into that full court press. Okay, so there, there's a lot of lot of variation there. There's a lot of changes, but it sounds like pressing is something that you do want to emphasize. Am I correct in that that a press is important to you? Yes, sir. I just I, you know, I, I struggle with. I go back and forth. Um, again, I want to, like I said, I want to teach the game. I want the game to be fun. I'm not interested in grinding out these super low scoring girls games. But I think you know, just at every level, especially with girls basketball, um, you know, you got to set them up for success. And so I think you need to be able to press and to be willing to press and to have that 
kind of mental fortitude to do that. Um, you know, I want us to play with high character. I want us to play with intensity. I want us to play um, with the appropriate kind of kindness. You know, we can help a girl up if she falls down. But at the same time, I want teams to wake up the day they're going to play us and, and not be looking forward to it because we're going to make them work forward and we're going to throw stuff at them. Um, and I just know as a player uh, and, and as a coach, every time someone comes out and is not pressuring us, uh, there's a sense of relief and there's a sense of we're going to get what we want. And I don't want to give teams uh, that feeling. Right. Uh, absolutely. I, I could definitely agree with that uh, about not wanting to have the other team just get into their offense and, and see if they can handle the ball and see how they do react to pressure first. That that makes complete sense to me. So with the idea of, of implementing this positionless basketball on offense and having multiple defenses, presses, half court traps and all these different sets, um, it would seem to me that you would need to have players themselves that could recognize these different situations and also be able to take advantage of what they see, what they read the defense doing, know what to do in certain situations. So. One of the complaints, for lack of a better term, that I hear a lot of the time is that the players themselves don't really have the knowledge of the game in order to read that defense or to be able to understand when to do this trap or when to make a certain decision. So how are you able to get your players to be those thinkers on the court so that they can adapt and adjust and be able to make good, sound decisions when they're playing? No, it's a great question, and it, it touches on some important things that you've already mentioned a couple of times. Uh, number one, as you mentioned earlier, um, is you got to be committed as a coach to giving time to all the players. It, it's just really easy, especially as you go into your season. Um, you know, I don't know about you, you know, but I kind of grew up with the expectation that if you were the seventh, eighth, ninth person on the bench, uh, you just have to pay attention and know what to do, and you might not get a lot of reps doing it. Um, and there's a time and a place for that. Um, but I think for the most part, you got to be committed to rotating people through. Um, and then philosophically, how we do that is we run 90% of our offensive and defensive drills uh, totally five on five at game speed. Um, and that way, as you said, you know, equipping girls uh, to, to really know how to recognize stuff. Um, I just I don't understand why coaches are ever not teaching offense and defense at the same time, uh, whether you're teaching a dribble drive move, whether you're teaching an offensive play, a, a baseline out of bounds, uh, whatever it is. Um, you're, you're always teaching both at the same time because that's how basketball works. And so as we understand what we're looking for in kind of a free flowing um, kind of non-committal offense that we're looking to drive and kick, we're looking to drive and dish. We drive, and if help comes, you pass to where the help came from. We know that there's a back cutter every time the cutter, the drive comes from the wing. Um, all those kinds of things that we know, the more that we see that on, on defense, whether a team's running a free-flowing offense, kind of read and react, or if they're running plays, uh, we, we've seen more stuff, and we can start to recognize more stuff because we're comfortable, and we get less caught up in trying to read the specific play as much as we read the danger areas. Uh, we, re we read what are they trying to get. Um, I think sometimes we, we get so caught up, especially as we play man-to-man -man consistently, which is important. You have to have that man-to-man -man foundation. But um, fighting over screens, going under screens, blitzing screens, whatever your philosophy is on that, um, I think sometimes teams get a little caught up in the wrong kind of hustle as opposed to just like, what are they wanting to get from this? How do I take that away? How do I nudge them towards what I want them to do, the kind of shot that we can live with if they're going to get a shot in that possession? And so I think it comes down to, like I said, really being committed to giving reps to everybody, um, really being committed to constantly be teaching both sides of the ball to stop and, and, and demonstrate how something worked or if something was missed or why something worked. Um, and then honestly, a lot of it comes down to giving players 
uh, confidence as well as permission to fail. Uh, we talk a lot about make a mistake because you did something, not because you didn't do something. Um, you know, we can live with an aggressive play or an aggressive pass uh, or, or an aggressive shot off of a, off of a rebound. Um, I can live with those kind of things more than that kind of stagnant and like fear-based uh, basketball that sometimes happens. And so I think if players feel, you know, together and from their coaches and from their teammates that we're in the same boat, that we know what we're trying to do, um, then that leads to the kind of confidence that leads to good decision-making. But again, you have to understand as a coach, you know, and, and certainly with our parents as well, who sometimes honestly get confused uh, that there's, there's, there's a purpose in this and it's okay for us to learn through mistakes. Um, you know, again, I think every player knows it's so important to do work outside of games, but the, the amount of experience and the value of playing in any game, any minutes on the court, is so valuable if you approach it right. And so, like I said, I really want girls to feel like they can make, you know, errors of commission, uh, er you know, mistakes of action. Um, and we're going to live with that um, because that's what we're committed to do. And we're going to go back and win the next possession. Well, absolutely. With, with so many of the things that you just said, I'll just touch on, on a few. Uh, the first off about the ones, the one that you asked about the seventh and eighth person, uh, I'll just say for my team right now, if you're the seventh or eighth person, you're playing because the other five are, the, they're running themselves. <laughs> they're running themselves hard. And, and my philosophy is if you don't need a break and you're a starter, you're not, you're not working hard enough because you're, you should absolutely. be out there busting your behind. Um, you mentioned too about the permission to fail, uh, permission to fail. And I, I feel like you have that mindset, which I totally agree with, that if, if you're not making mistakes, then you're probably not trying. I mean, you're doing something wrong if you aren't making a mistake. Um, and that mistakes are, are one of the ways that we learn. And then also about uh, the idea of how hard you how hard you practice and, and when you make those mistakes to make sure that you're doing them at full speed, because I don't think any of us coach uh for players to be playing at half speed. So for, and I feel like you would agree with this, that if a player is going to be making that mistake or they're going to learn, they got to be going at full speed because that's the only way that we're going to be able to correct them. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I picked up something. Uh, I've never met him in person, but David Thorpe, who, who's an analyst and has been a player's coach. He runs a program in Florida. Um, he, he has a, just a simple drill that, that I picked up that we do um, almost every practice where you just grab a ball and you get low and you dribble the ball so hard until you lose it. And, and just that, that, that mental jump from like the success is like dribbling so hard that I lose the ball or dribble off my foot or whatever um, is just a really practical way that I use to try to get them to understand exactly what you just said, which is so true that if we're not practicing at full speed, it's just not going to happen. You know, it's easy to, to, to look at, you know, a, a star player, whether it's someone on TV, whether it's just someone at practice or at a game, you're, you're going out as a player. Um, and, and they make some crazy shot. And sometimes it's a crazy shot, but most of the time it's something that that player has worked on um, and it's stuff that they've worked on at game speed. So I totally, totally agree. Uh, dribble till you lose it. I, I like that. I like that drill a lot. That That's a good one. I wrote that one down. Um, to touch on a couple other things that, that you mentioned, um, one of the things that I, I'm curious about when you're giving these players uh, this level of autonomy and this level of freedom is, uh, let, let's just say we're in the beginning of the game here, um, and there's a, there's you're on defense and there's a shooter out there on the perimeter. 
Is there any sort of level of scouting that is going on beforehand? Are you just having your players close out hard, uh, kind of sag back a little bit? Um, what What is the level of sort of preparation or like feeling out process in that beginning uh, when it comes to like those like split second decisions? Obviously, you adjust towards the middle and the end, but is there a certain sort of philosophy you have right there in the beginning for situations like that? Sure. I mean, yeah, like you said, presuming that we don't have scouting, we don't, we aren't, we aren't able to do a ton of scouting. Obviously, there's teams we've played before over the years. Um, if I can myself, I'll try to go to games in advance, but we don't have a ton of that. And so, in general, um, we're going to make shooters prove it to us a little bit. Um, we are going to close out with aggression, you know, just like you're taught from a little kid, short steps with a hand up, um, contest, but not, we're not, we're not trying to block, we're trying to contest. Um, and we're going to uh, kind of, read what the offense is doing and again getting the girls to recognize one of the reasons we we run a few different plays early on to get a three is so we can kind of recognize those things if it's the you know first or second or third time down the court and they're running a down screen for a girl popping up the shoots is probably a shooter and so there's not really an excuse for sagging on that uh, and again because we aren't giving away those kind of easy wing passes even if we're in the zone we're not just kind of letting them move the ball to the wing and set up offense that kind of uh, negates giving away that super easy one. Um, and so in general, again, we'll, we'll, we'll make them prove it a little bit, but uh, we'd rather just put pressure on because we trust our, our help defense if we need to. Yeah, that that, make, that makes a lot of sense. I, I do like the idea of proving it and not just, uh, you know, maybe assuming that they can't do something or, or they can do something. And you, you'll, like you said, you, you'll figure it out in the first couple of possessions if they're setting that down screen to free open a shooter. There's probably a reason why that why that's happening. <laughs> um, it sounds like, especially uh, on the defensive end, but also on on the offensive end as well, is that the philosophies that you try to uh, have your girls follow require a lot of communication and i'm sure every single coach will say <laughs> that their players are not communicating enough on the court and there's not enough communication going on is there anything intentional that you do or that you set up in your practices uh in order to kind of build the communication that's happening on the court because i don't know about you but one of my goals that i'm trying to work on is trying to say less when I'm coaching in a game so that my players can talk more and they're not just waiting to hear from me. So I'm curious, how do you build that uh, communication uh, with your team? No, for sure. That's a great question. I definitely agree with you. You know, once we're in the game, I, I want them to be talking. I want them to be in charge. And, uh, you know, maybe it's something I should have touched on earlier with the homeschoolers. I've, I've found that I actually have the opposite problem. I have too many talkers at times. Um, oh, wow. I have a lot of girls that are the oldest in their family, like I said, with three or four younger siblings. And they're kind of used to being babysitter or, or kind of playing the role of mom, you know, for a couple hours a day here and there. And uh, sometimes there's, you know, just disagreements, you know. And so um, we philosophically, uh, we talk on defense uh, from the back, you know, uh, you know, if, if we're in a zone. Um, and then we just try to talk a lot. Um, and, and I think the, the biggest hurdle that we have to jump, um, and, and this is probably pretty typical of most teams, but I think especially for, for the girls that are maybe picking it up, even past like sixth grade, where uh, they need to get used to in practice, and again, being that commitment in practice to talk loud and to talk a lot. Um, you know, just like anything else, as you mentioned earlier, if you don't practice it, you're not going to practice it in the game. You're not going to do it in the game. And so... Um, just really making them comfortable with it, insisting on it, 
Um, I, I, you know, I don't think there's a, a right or wrong approach in this regard. I'm not really a yeller at all um, in practice. Um, I yell to be heard in the games. Uh, that's just not my style. I, you know, I could maybe improve as a coach in some ways in that regard, but that's just not what I'm going to do. Um, but we will, I will make, make us run. I will make us uh, deal with consequences when we're not talking in practice. And then it becomes really natural. Um, and then, like we touched on earlier with autonomy, part of autonomy and part of the team buying into each other is again we 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 talk, we we say talk from behind and so the the player behind you has the right to decide what we're going to do again unless we really know a specific situation and we're blitzing always blitzing a screen or always switching a screen you may think you don't need to switch if they call switch just switch um and trust her and trust your teammate whether that works out or not um and then that kind of gives like you said earlier, you know, if somebody gets hurt and they're the person that kind of coaches on the court, um, then all of a sudden you're in trouble and everybody's scrambling. So we want everybody to be empowered to talk, but also to understand, you know, I don't care if it's a seventh grader. We have three girls hurt and three girls in foul trouble. And there's a seventh grader out there in a varsity game for a couple of minutes. If she says switch, you switch. Um, and uh, we, we trust each other on that. And so I think that empowering them to do that um, and getting them to try to buy into each other is really crucial for that sport. Well, I, I love the idea uh, of empowerment and giving the players on the court that power to, to feel like they're, they're able to make those decisions. Is there anything intentional that you have to do in practice in order for them to know that they need to communicate? Or is it one of those things where every single drill, you make sure that it's happening and then you stop it if it isn't? Is there a teaching moment that has to take place so that they know how to communicate or what they're communicating? Because one of the things you did say was that some of your uh, girls that you're coaching don't really come in with a lot of basketball knowledge. So it seems to me that there also has to be a little bit of uh, teaching of the game and almost teaching what they need to say. Um, am I correct in thinking that way? Are there things that you need to be doing in your practice to make sure that they know how to communicate effectively? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, 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 that's really important. I'm glad that you touched on that because, um, like you said, because they maybe don't have that experience, uh, we actually will start the season. We'll do kind of completely non-basketball related, take a few minutes and, and do more of like a team building drill, whether it's a puzzle, uh, whether it's a kind of a drawing game where two people are sitting back to back. And, and I won't get into all the details of that, but the, the philosophy behind it is, if I'm trying to tell you to draw a slanted square and to you, that's a rhombus, right? Okay. It doesn't really matter which one it is, as long as we're talking about the same thing and we know what we're talking about. And so whether they come in with a lot of experience or whether they come in and they have no idea, I've literally have girls who are like, how do you decide who, how do you know who won the game? Like, I had like a <laughs> girl be like, you know, if you don't know, you don't know. If you, know, you haven't been around it. Um, and certainly, you know, even offense, defense, screens, basic stuff. And so we try to be consistent um, in what we say. And, and, and I can be guilty of slipping at times. We try to be consistent in, in our terms for everything. You know, we, we can be varied with a, with a screen or a pick, um, things like that. But for the most part, we just try to know what we're talking about, reinforce that term, use that term all the time. Um, again, if we're blitzing screens, if we're switching screens, um, all those basic things. And as well as taking time at, at the early part of the season, you know, we all want to get into kind of the nitty gritty. Um, but taking time, even as they're running through a layup drill, be talking to a girl as, as you're watching and as you're going things, you're having an assistant coach do this and just talking through basics and reinforcing and quizzing people on things. Uh, so that in a game, you know, I have a lot of really honestly well-behaved girls who, who may not 
um, be as willing and maybe a little scared to speak up if I said something in the game and they're not quite sure what I mean. And if they mess that up, that's kind of on me. And so really making sure that we understand what our terms are, are consistent on our terms. We can call a screen whatever we want as long as we know what we're talking about. Um, and so really kind of understanding how important it is to speak terms and know what they mean and uh, and be committed to that kind of as a group. Well, a- absolutely. On, on having those like terms and, and making sure that for those players who may not be completely familiar with uh, the language and with the vocabulary related to basketball, to making sure that everybody's consistent with the words they're using and what they mean so that they're not getting those mixed messages or those, or those cross signals. And so... To kind of follow up one more time with that, have you found in in your experience that players are able to articulate if if they made a mistake and they can identify like what they didn't do or what happened if there is some sort of breakdown somewhere? Have you had any success with that at all? I have, like, and I I will say, um, and again, I'm so glad you asked that because I I think with a lot of kids, and and I'd love to hear your, your thoughts on that too, a lot of kids, they mess up um, and, and they realize they messed up. And so that makes them feel down. And so getting them to understand like, hey, a year ago or in some cases, you know, six weeks ago, you wouldn't have even known that you messed that up. You know, I've had I've had girls like be a few degrees off on a on an angle for a down screen and, and know that they're wrong or 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 they, they just completely uh, flub a, a, a pass and they throw something out of bounds and do something really obviously bad. But even with really small things, at first they tend to get super dejected because they're like, oh, man, but, but it be, they're, they're feeling that way because they're actually growing and they're understanding and they're understanding why, um, why that's a problem. And so being able to kind of turn that around for them and say, hey, like, you know, not only is it not a big deal that you screwed up because, like, that's what good players do at times, but it's awesome because now you know, you know, where before I had to tell you and I had to explain what you did wrong and why it was wrong. And now, you know, before I need to tell you. And I think that, again, goes back to empowering them and then understanding. And then obviously we all love to see when they have tangible growth in a positive way and they see shots going in or they see how a defensive rotation um, works for us. But it works on the flip side as well. And I always try to encourage them, you know, when you see when you recognize a a mistake, often that's because you're growing as a player. Um, And getting them to understand that can be a hurdle. But when they do, I just think it really opens up. a lot of understanding and, and real love for the game as they start to kind of see those pieces of it. Well, yeah, absolutely. You, you touched on uh, a couple things that, that are important to me as well and hopefully important to a lot of coaches that are listening and this idea of embracing mistakes and understanding that mistakes should be taking place and that mistakes are perfectly fine as long as those mistakes lead to those like teachable moments and, and your players learning. And, and you asked about uh, me personally, um, I adore it when a player can tell me what they did wrong. And if they can tell me the mistake that they made before I even have to say anything, like we're, we're really in business. Um, because at the end of the day, I, I think that most coaches would agree that they put the players on the court that they trust the most, uh, more than maybe anything. And so if a players can make if players make mistakes, but then they also can identify why they made that mistake. Probably they can fix that mistake and that builds a lot of trust. Uh, at least for me, that's how I, I personally feel that way. Um, but you're so right about, about embracing those mistakes and, and it's okay. And I think that one of the disservices that I've seen, and, and you can touch on this too really quickly if you've seen this as well, is those times when you're coaching, and I, I'm guilty of this, when a player makes a mistake and all of a sudden it's like, well, you're out, you're done. 
and then it's like you try to build this culture that they can make mistakes, but then all of a sudden they they dribble the ball off their foot and you're just pulling them. And I think that that also uh, could send a mixed message. Absolutely. I, I totally agree. It's, it, it comes down to commitment. Like you said, I definitely screwed that up at times. But yeah, I try to be, if it's a mistake of action, um, yeah, I'll try to just let it roll and we go on to the next play. But that's, that's definitely tough to do when it's a tight game and you're in the heat of it. Um, and you want to do what's best for them. And sometimes they give you that look that they want to come out because um, they know they messed up. But yeah, sometimes you just have to press through. And so related to that idea of kind of making mistakes and also having autonomy really quick, um, one of the things that I've heard as a concern uh, not necessarily a criticism, but a concern of doing some things about like five out uh, positionless basketball where players are everywhere and they have the uh, autonomy to make the decisions is that they may just end up taking that 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 poor shot because they don't know their own skill set or they may, you know, take that for you when they have no business taking it or, you know, trying to drive an attack when they shouldn't. Are you still implementing a philosophy where the players themselves sort of know where their shot or where their offense should come from? Or are you in a situation where you're giving them the reins and that they can make the best decision that they can possible? Um, even if it's not, even if it doesn't have that much structure to like what decision they're going to make. No, it's a good question. And I, and I understand uh, those concerns that you're kind of, you're kind of speaking for. Um, but I would say it's a little bit of both, but it's definitely more so on the side of I want them to kind of learn as we play and learn as we go and we grow and we get better through playing at game speed. Um, definitely, you know, again, they're coached through to know um, their shots. But uh, uh, for, for us, for our, you know, we have seven, seven girls that, that are really in our very active rotation and then eighth and ninth that play a little bit. Um, but for those seven girls, uh, they, if they're open, they got to shoot a three, all, all seven of them. And, and that's something I'll take them out for. Um, if they're wide open um, and the defense is sagging, uh, we got to prove our willingness to do it um, or else we just become way too easy to guard. Um, and similarly, if there's a driving lane there, if they're putting pressure on you, you got to move the ball, you got to drive. Um, and so a lot of it comes down to we just practice drive and kick all the time. We practice drive and dish and drive, you know, penetrate and, and then kick the ball to the corner, to the wing. Um, you know, that classic driving baseline. If you drive baseline, that passing to the opposite baseline is pretty much always there as an outlet. So giving them confidence to where the ball goes if they get cut off. Um, working really in detail on how many dribbles can you have? You know, do, do I know that I can get to the spot I want to get to in this many dribbles to get to a step back, to get to a layup, to get to a floater, whatever that may be. And so, yeah, really getting them to feel empowered and again, to, to make those reads, but I'm, but I'm okay with them making uh, mistakes of commission again. Well, and that's so true. What you said is, is that you would need to get the defense to respect everybody to potentially be a shooter, everybody to be able to drive and that for uh, basketball to be truly positionless and truly be free flowing. There does have to be some sort of level where the players could potentially do everything. And that kind of creates the unpredictability and, and, and kind of the, the fun in it for, for the girls and the guys who run this sort of set to feel they kind of have that freedom to make the choice that's best for them. So that's great. Now, yeah, on the, and I will go just, ahead. sorry, follow up on like, oh, we, we also just uh, take a lot of time to have, make sure the girls understand again, the reasons. So we found over the last few years, as we break down our stats, we're rebounding missed threes at a high rate. Uh, our own missed threes. And so we, we play a very aggressive offensive rebound 
uh, style. And so that's another reason why we're okay um, with those. We have, you know, three or four really good shooters and three or four, you know, just kind of average shooters, I would say, from outside. Um, But they're going to make above average if they're open. And we're going to get enough of those offensive rebounds for second shot opportunities that we're okay with that. And since they understand that, again, it gives the confidence. And then I think we we see more shots go in because they're shooting with confidence. And uh, no, nothing demoralizes uh, uh, the opposing team by just killing it on those offensive boards. So I'm sure that <laughs> I'm sure that could be demoralizing as well. Uh, make making coaches go gray, not getting the rebounds on defense. <laughs> um, so on, on the players, then you've given your philosophy about autonomy and, and the decisions that they can make and why they can make those decisions. Well, there's also the other end of that as well, which is on the coaching end, where you also have to make those decisions where if your players are going to be really flexible, you as a coach also need to be flexible as well. So the balance between those two, how do you balance making adjustments and potentially going too far and tinkering with things too much uh, versus making those adjustments because it creates the unpredictability that you want? Yeah, it's a great question. It's definitely uh, can be a tricky balance. Um, but again, for me, it really comes down to, we trust, we trust our players. Um, I love what you said earlier again about not coaching too much from the bench. I, I hate, hate, hate watching games, even D one college games that are just overcoached where coaches just want to control every possession both ways. I have no problem with offensive and defensive subs and stuff like that, but, um, players, especially at this level, man, they, they got to learn by playing. Um, and so. For the most part, we're going to know our game plan. We're going to know what we uh, can switch to and how we can alter from that. Um, And there have been a few times where we've really gone off board, where we've said, okay, girls, like the only way we're going to have success is we're going to play man the rest of this game from, you know, middle to second quarter on. Um, But for the most part, we're committed to what Mm -hmm. we're trying to do, and we understand just exactly what um, those needs are, and, and, and we're committed to that. And so I think as a coach, my, my philosophy is just to try to not be not, not to overburden myself um, and not to put pressure on myself in the wrong way. If, if we've done the job as coaches, I think, I think we'll show up to the game and our job is to encourage our job is to make those tweaks. Um, if, there, if there's a subtle thing that needs to be done, but for the most part, we, we trust the game plan and, and we don't, we don't adjust for the sake of adjusting. I, I try to communicate to the girls all the time. Our goal is not to be, complicated or or diverse for the sake of it or for this it's not a gimmick uh it's just our philosophy of how we're going to play and so when we show up to a game um our girls know what to do they're empowered to call plays sometimes the girls will call switches um baseline out of bounds stuff like that and so uh we're just going to do what we are there to do well i think it's so funny that that one of the things we talked about was players uh one of the common concerns is players not communicating too much on the court, and yet the coaches during the game are doing all the talking, not leaving much room for players to talk in the first place. So yeah, there exactly. seems to be a direct correlation to that. And so in your experience, having done this for, for quite a few years, do you find that you are kind of the outlier of in terms of the teams that you play against? Are, are some of these other teams really embedded in a certain philosophy and certain style that they try to uh, drill at you no matter what? Or uh, are you finding that there's a lot of flexibility and there's a lot of adjustments that other coaches are making and it's more of a chess match? Uh, how do you kind of see that with, with your coaching experience so far? 
Sure. Um, I, I definitely a little bit of both. I should mention about 90% of the teams we play are not homeschool teams, pretty much outside of tournaments. We're not playing homeschool teams. So it's public schools, private schools um, that are on our schedule. And for the most part, we see a lot of teams that are willing to switch from man to zone. And I'd love to hear your thoughts. I think with girls a little bit more, there's a willingness to, to, to adjust between those things, whereas guys tend to be, and in a lot in a lot of ways for good reason, tend to be committed to just playing man and playing man 100% of the time um, outside of maybe a baseline out of bounds or things like that. Um, and so I do see a lot of switches in how we're defended. Um, we don't see a lot of changes in how girls play offense. I find that um, whether it's uh, a lot of set plays or a lot of that kind of read and react offense, it tends to be uh, kind of one or the other. Um, one of the reasons, again, that we like to be flexible is a lot of the teams that we play are used to playing against teams that play man all the time. And, and we can see some teams that would prefer that we play them man. You know, I think as a coach, even though man is tough, man, I think if you run against man, that tends to be the most identical to what you've practiced, you know, because, you know, kind of if you position yourself properly, the defender is closest to where you practice that that defender to be. Um, and so I would say we see a little bit of it, uh, but mostly on the defensive end. Right. And so uh, you, you mentioned a couple of things there about the, the willingness to kind of play man and zone and being able to switch those up. I, I feel like a lot of that comes down to almost like your team chemistry and the trust that your team has in one another. I, I found that some teams that uh, maybe are not well-disciplined or maybe not necessarily well-coached uh, are going to do man because the players don't necessarily trust the other members of that team to do that responsibility on like in a zone defense, for example. And so I think that it kind of speaks to something uh, that we talked about a little bit earlier about needing to kind of build the communication and needing uh, on a greater scale, needing to build a trust within your team where those, where those girls in this situation are going to trust one another to be able to do their responsibility and do their role when they're on defense. Am I correct in that assessment? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And so I, I think that it's great that there's a lot of uh, opportunities again for the girls uh in your team to be able to make those decisions and be able to kind of adjust and do things uh the way that they see fit uh is is that been your philosophy the whole time that you've been coaching is that something that you've sort of picked up more as you've continued your coaching i should have asked this a little earlier and i apologize has this been always been your philosophy or is this something you've sort of adapted uh over time no, sure. It's a good question. I, I think early on, like I said, it was a very new program when I when I came in, and uh, because we were not, we're still not part of a league, uh, and and so there would be times in the early stages of our program where I would have six girls from sixth grade to eleventh grade, and we would, you know, try to book a game, and they say, well, we'll play us with we'll play our varsity against you if you want. That's all we want from you or, or whatever that may be. And just getting creamed, you know, athletically or whatever. And I, again, I'm okay with, with girls really being challenged, but some of it really started there just in terms of, you know, I, at first my mindset was play man, play man, play man. They got to learn how to play man. And I still believe that philosophically um, that they have to know how to do it. But, you know, if you're just so severely overmatched that, that a zone of some sort will kind of give you a little bit more uh, flexibility and opportunity to compete, I just found that that gave us, you know, we saw some success with that. We saw at least the offense have to work a little bit more with that. 
Um, and then again, the flip side, as we talked about earlier with girls not having a lot of experience coming in and, you know, I don't know, again, I don't know what you've experienced and sometimes, um, especially if you don't have a really good program that builds from, you know, junior basketball all the way up. Um, sometimes you kind of have to teach them out of stuff, out of habits or out of philosophies that they maybe had before. And so since we didn't really have that, I just realized that we kind of play a sort of different brand of basketball um, that could really be something that we could identify ourselves as. And again, they could take some pride in. So it was a combination of things, but again, started just with personnel and then really became philosophy. Well, it's it's so true what you mentioned about the the habits and potentially the unlearning of bad habits in order to teach the good habits. Uh, I, I'm in the same boat at my school where uh, I'm starting to ground up so my players don't have to necessarily unlearn bad habits. I can uh, the way the way that I see fit and the way our program sees fit. So there is a bit of an advantage to that, which which obviously we appreciate. And I think that one of the things that is, is interesting that we mentioned was how players to think of how to word this correctly basically need that sort of and they're going to need to get that environment in order for them to i think get the support i think they need to feel controllable going on and they're just not necessarily at the of their kind of barking instructions yeah and I think go ahead no go ahead sorry finish your thought <laughs> uh well listen this was in addition and their thoughts and their views is that or most in the public here uh, the public education your players are constantly be changing homeschool too as well can't necessarily just impute the philosophy no matter what because you might not have those players to do that philosophy so i think like being flexible and being adaptable is really important absolutely i totally agree just you know just Take the players and, and and you're responsible for them, whether you have them for a semester or for five years. Uh, you just do your best to raise them to understand the game and to love it. And and that's all you can do. Absolutely. Well, coach, we're going to conclude with uh, a couple questions here uh, to kind of wrap up. So is there a coaching moment that you've had in your years of experience? Any Anything from the practice floor to the game floor, anything related to coaching, uh, any particular moment that you had that you think others who are listening can learn from? Um, well, I think what immediately jumps to mind, there's, there's been so many things that I've learned from players, so many times where a player has, in, in the right and respectful sense, kind of pushed back on something, and that's been really cool to see and, and just kind of you know made an aggressive move or called a play or suggested something. But something that happened a few years ago, we're getting towards the end of our season. We're gearing up for our homeschool nationals uh, tournament, um, and there was an opportunity that opened up with a, with a high school team in our area. Um, they were one of the best teams in the state. They had three girls going to play D1. Um, they were they were an elite, elite team. Uh, they were just a few steps above us in terms of competitiveness, athleticism, size, just everything. Um, and I had a young team. Um, and we talked amongst ourselves as coaches. And then we talked kind of openly with the team about what this opportunity was uh, kind of right before the tournament, knowing that would be really tough. And we decided to take it on. And we worked so, so hard preparing um, and we stuck with them for about four minutes um, before they, they kind of blew it open on us. Um, but then we went to the tournament 
and we won the tournament uh, kind of going away. We had one tough game for our first round, and from there on, we played with a confidence uh, and a boldness that I'd just never seen the girls play before. And I think the reason that happened was had nothing to do with me, had nothing to do with coaching, but just them being on the court with the super elite quality players um, and, and getting beat, but understanding this is still just basketball. You know, this is still, you know, if you get good shots and you make them, uh, you're going to have a chance of competing. If you play good defense, you're going to have a chance of contesting. Um, and, and I think that just really kind of freed them of a lot of fear. And it kind of gave them, in comparison to a team that was, you know, more on our level, but still a tough team that, you know, that would, would probably split, go five and five if we played 10 games against. And just really going out in a game like that and playing with a ton of confidence because you know you can hang with anybody. Uh, you, you maybe can't beat anybody, um, or at least not very many times out of 10, but we can compete and we can hang. And I found that um, for me, it just going forward, I think as a coach, especially since we're um, not a part of a league, we've turned down some invitations because it just hasn't made sense for us. There can be that temptation, you know, we, we could book a soft schedule and, and, and have an undefeated regular season. There, there are some years that we could do that or, or get close to that. Um, but there's so much value uh, in, in playing tough teams. Um, again, you don't want too many games like that if, if you can help it, but to, to, to really get a chance, you know, like a lot of, because we're not a part of the public school program, you know, you don't always have that chance to really play up a few levels. Um, and so really, I think taking that opportunity both immediately in that season and then going forward for those players that were a part of that um, was just really fruitful. And so we found that um, we can get an elite team that is willing to play us. Um, uh, we'll do it because that I think really emboldens players to understand that this is still just basketball. Um, you know, you, you step on the court, uh, you compete hard, and it's about being proud of yourself at the end of the game, at the end of the day, uh, more than it is about winning and losing. Well, there's a couple of things that, that you mentioned with that that I just think are so important to, to take away from and that that hopefully those listening will as well. Uh, number one is that emotional toughness and sort of that mental fortitude that is built when you play those tougher teams, when you play those teams that maybe are a little bit above your level. Uh, it, it really trains you to, to be tough and really kind of persevere to be at your best. And secondly, is that when you're playing these really good you're going to see the things that they do well and there might be some habits that those teams do well that your players can learn from and they can see the game played at maybe a higher level that's going to help them become better players uh, I've had situations before of teams that I've coached where we've won a game and I was more upset after we won than some of the games that we lost because they yep. were they had terrible habits playing down to, to the level of their competition and I felt that they got more out of a, a tough loss to a good team rather than a blowout against a, a cupcake type team. I feel like you might agree with that <laughs> based yeah, on absolutely. what you just said. hundred percent, hundred percent. Like you said, just, just having to step up. Um, and just, this is just kind of a side note, but hopefully it connects to what we're saying. Um, it, it kills me how players don't like to play one-on-one -on -one as much anymore. Uh, just, I, I think, and maybe it's more of a guy problem than a girl problem. I don't know. Maybe that's too much of a, of a broad statement, but man, like just that idea that if, if I play this person one-on-one -on -one and they win, then they're better than me. And just understanding that, you know, playing one-on-one, -on -one, you know, is not perfectly representative of a game, obviously, but just having to rely on yourself and work on moves against real defense, all those kinds of things. Um, I just, it's the exact same thing. You know, I always tell the girls is play against the best players that you can in a pickup game, one-on-one. -on -one with a sibling, with a friend. And then, yeah, exactly. When we're in those games, you start to pick 
pick up on stuff. You start to see stuff. And as you said, you really step up to the level of competition as opposed to stepping down, as you said, and winning a game, but being like, man, we did not represent ourselves very well. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely agree. I, I love the idea of, you know, just play one, play more one-on-one, be more competitive. Uh, don't take it personal. Like a loss in one-on-one doesn't mean anything. It's just another opportunity to grow. Couldn't agree more. So to wrap up coach, I'm going to give you what I call like my 60 second soapbox. So what I'm going to allow you to do is I'm going to give you the floor for you to discuss or get an idea out about whatever you want to in, in the coaching world, anything that you think would be important for, for listeners to hear, an idea, a philosophy, uh, a mantra, anything that you want. So I'm going to give you the floor. Get on your soapbox. What message do you want to get out to those listening? Well, thanks. And I think something that I just really, really can increasingly care about, I mentioned at the beginning, uh, I wanted to be a high school coach from the time I was in probably seventh or eighth grade, and I had no idea how to get there. Um, we see as coaches, we see as people, as parents, as, as people involved in high school basketball, um, the, the key to the sport thriving beyond this generation is good coaching and good coaching being as many places as possible. And we get into this because we love kids. Hopefully we get into this because we're competitive. But the, the actual camaraderie, the actual understanding of what it's like to deal with parents and deal with players and deal with referees and deal with all the things that comes with coaching, nobody understands that better than other coaches. And I feel like we don't do a good enough job taking advantage of each other as resources. There are small programs and there are there are certainly pockets and schools and probably even school districts. And I know there's some online kind of mentor mentee things trying to connect people, but just really changing the culture of basketball um, and not even. I'm not even talking so much about X's and O's. You can get all that stuff online nowadays. You can call somebody and they might be willing to send you a playbook. But to really, um, and it goes in both directions for sure. I think there are a lot of older coaches that would be happy to have a sit down and have a coffee uh, with a coach or invite them into a practice session or invite them into a planning meeting uh, with their with their team. Um, but younger players don't ask. And for the younger players that do ask, maybe they ask the wrong people, somebody that is a really good, as you said at the beginning, maybe a really elite coach, but doesn't have, you know, a desire really to pass that on. The only way the sport is going to thrive going forward is if we have coaches that are consistently every day, every practice, maybe to a specific person, but maybe not, but be thinking about how am I training up the next coach? If I got called somewhere else, if something happened that I needed to step away, am I working every practice, working every game, working every meeting to not just let assistant coaches be a part of what we're doing, but to really like invite them to be actionally involved, like to really be, be tangibly involved in what's going on, to, to not just tell them what we do, but to tell them why we do it. Um, I am still just desperate to learn, and I, and, and I know how far behind I am of so many coaches, and there's so many elite basketball minds around the country, and I just think it, it takes individuals. It's not a program. It's not a system. It just takes individuals being more willing to step away from a game, let the kind of heat of competition die down, but, but really just come alongside of the coaches, whether you coach against them or not, um, but being more willing to ask and being more willing to give. Um, I think that's how we really start to spread um, better coaching throughout the country as we go forward. Well, that that's such a great point and such a great idea. I, I feel like a lot of coaches look at other coaches almost as their enemies and almost as their adversaries and those people yeah. that they're competing against. And uh, I don't, I don't want to share anything with them because they might use it against me. And, and I think that 
if your philosophy of coaching is just about wins and losses and not and not the betterment of the men and women that that you're you're coaching, I, I think that you're you're really missing something out on this profession. I, I really think that we we probably all have to start looking at our fellow coaches as peers, as people who are all in this mission together. And if you can teach me something that's going to help my girls and I can do vice versa, like, is, isn't that what this is about? Isn't that what we're trying to do is build young men and women to be the best that they can be? Absolutely. I mean, I think if that, you know, one of the lessons we've learned through this pandemic is, you know, the next season, the next week, the next game, none of this stuff is, is a sure thing. And so let's take advantage of what we have. And we're just, you know, it's, it's good to plan and be prepared and to work hard for the future. But yeah, if we're not taking every hour, every minute, every conversation with our players and with other coaches to to to, to build people up, then then I don't know what we're doing this for. I couldn't agree more. Absolutely. Uh, well, Coach, uh, I want to thank you for spending some time uh, talking to me, talking to our listeners, and, and sharing your expertise. Uh, this is a great conversation, and I hope that uh, some coaches can definitely benefit uh, from the words that you shared. So uh, for Coach Josiah Hager, uh, my name is Michael Hernandez. Thank you so much for listening to the Basketball Teacher Podcast. Take care, be safe, be well, and see you next time.